and I have been looking forward to doing chapter 30 for a long time. It is a very good and rich chapter. Um, who here is familiar with Proverbs 30? What is it? Do you know it? It's actually a sort of overlooked chapter uh, in the book of Proverbs. It is the saints of who? What's his name? Do you know him? Agor. Agor. Very good. Saints of Agor. And um, it's unfortunate it is overlooked as it is um, because it's very rich and very significant um, to the book. Um, so this morning, we're just going to look actually at the first four verses of, of this chapter. Uh, but they're very rich, and I have a lot of material to get through uh, because it's so rich. Uh, so we will we'll fly. So buckle up. Um, this morning we're going to be, and next week as well, we're going to be looking at Agor's autobiography. He begins chapter 30 with his autobiography, and it's verses 1 through 9. And uh, the whole chapter is a single whole, so it's not fragmented uh, units that are sort of put together that are unrelated. It's all related as one, um, one message or one speech that, that Agor gives here. And this is how he begins it with an autobiography. So let me read it, chapter 30, verses 1 through 9, and then we will dive in. The words of Agor, son of Jacob, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who's gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you, deny them not to me before I die. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. Lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So that's his autobiography. That's how he begins. Um, his whole message that he is giving. And this morning, we're going to look at the first half of the autobiography, autobiography the first four verses. Um, and it is uh, it's very significant, um, very rich. So without further ado, let's, uh, let's jump in here. Um, look at his introduction in verse 1a. Okay, his introduction. Who is this guy, Agor, anyway, and why should we listen to him? Um, who is he? Well, he gives us his identity. It says, the words of Agor, son of Jacob. And that's about all we know about him. <laughs> He's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, nor is his father mentioned anywhere else in, in Scripture. Um, early Jewish commentators and uh, the translators of the Septuagint and Jerome, these people tried to translate their names to apply it to Solomon in some way as though he, he wrote it. Um, but um, it's most likely not the case. There's no reason not to take these as names. In Hebrew, it's very clear these are names. 
Um, and in wisdom literature, it always begins with an identification of the name of the person who wrote it. So this Agra guy is, is his name, it's who he is. We just, uh, he, he just doesn't appear anywhere else in, in the Bible. Um, uh, the Bible actually indicates that there is um, other sages and wise men in Israel, so it's not a problem to recognize that. It's probably one of those um, sages in Israel. Some speculate that he was probably a Gentile who converted to the Israelite faith. So while his name doesn't appear anywhere in the Bible, the word, the name Agor and the name Jaka appears in other Semitic languages that are related to Hebrew. So it's a very good chance that he was uh, a Gentile and he converted to the faith of, uh, of Israel. Um, and, uh, and we're going to see some, some evidences of that as we, as we go on. Um, the content of this chapter also suggests that this man, Agor, was a royal official he, in, the, in a king's um, uh, palace, in a king's domain. He probably wasn't a king, but he worked for a king. Some speculated maybe for um, King Solomon and King Solomon's court, um, which uh, all wisdom literature, again, is very royal in its, in its focus. So, um, so really, we don't know a lot of certainty about who Agur was, but we know he was a real person. We know he wrote this whole chapter. We, we, we think he was probably a convert to Israel. He probably worked in the, in the king's royal spheres, uh, and he writes inspired scripture, to which we must pay attention, and that's what I want to direct your words to next. Why should we listen to this guy? Well, look at how he describes his words and summarizes the content of this chapter. He says, the words of Agur, the son of Jaka, the oracle. The word translated here, oracle, is the Hebrew word, Masah. Um, it's a very common word used by prophets um, in the Old Testament. It means a prophetic burden. Um, the idea is, a, is of a weighty message that God has given to a prophet that he has to speak. Um, it, it's heavy, it's weighty, it's a burden given by God to him that he must proclaim. And it's almost always used in context of warning and judgment. Okay? So Isaiah talks about the oracle concerning Babylon and the oracle concerning Moab. And they're, they're judgment oracles. Um, and they're prophetic. So this is what Agur calls his words. He calls it a massah, an oracle, a prophetic burden. Um, and this is significant because it highlights for us that we're going to get some warnings of judgment in this chapter. Um, and it's also important because it emphasizes from the start that his words are inspired. He is speaking to us as an inspired prophet. Um, some have argued that this word here translated Massah is actually the word Masa, which is uh, a city located in Arabia. And so it's saying, Agur, son of Jacob, man of Masa. Um, but you have to play with the Hebrew a little bit to get there. And I don't think it's necessary because look at the very next words. The very next words knock the ball out of the park to show us that Agur presents himself as a prophet speaking divinely inspired words. So it says the oracle, the man declares, or literally an inspired utterance of the man. Now, that word declares is universal in the Old Testament for an inspired utterance by God. Um, it's very common 
to identify that the words of a prophet are God's words. And it always means a divine declaration. It's the Hebrew word naum. So you're going to see the prophets are, are given a message and they say, declares the Lord, declares the Lord. You, you've read that. I'm sure you've read that. It's over and over again. It always means these words are divinely inspired. Um, it, it's meant to convey the ultimate authority and the source of the words is Yahweh. Here, Agra doesn't say a declaration of Yahweh. He says a declaration of the man. But this doesn't mean that the words are less than God's words. Um, the word naum is never used of non-inspired words in Hebrew. So, so it's clear this is inspired speech. It's prophetic speech that Agra is giving. Um, and he, so he says an inspired declaration of the man. That's the exact phrase used by Balaam. In Numbers 24, it's the exact phrase used by David in 2 Samuel 23. And it's clear in all of those instances, these are inspired words from God to be taken seriously. So why am I emphasizing this? Why, why are we spending so much time here? It's because Agur emphasizes it. He says two times, two different prophetic words uh, to identify his words are very inspired. This is to be taken seriously, it's to be paid attention to. And I emphasize this because the necessity for divine revelation is the main point of his confession, as we're going to see. His words are inspired, and we're in desperate need of inspired revelation. And Agur is going to give it to us. Um, so he is speaking uh, as a prophet, and he is speaking divinely inspired words, which we need to pay attention, is the point. Um, so look next at his audience. It says, the words of Agur, son of Jacob, the prophetic burden, an inspired utterance of the man to Ithiel. Now, do any of your Bibles, your translations, say something different here? In Ukol. Very good. Very good. Okay, so it says to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Ukol. Very good. All right, so that's, that's uh, another possibility. Any, anyone else say something different? Does your translation not say Ithiel at all? Who has an ESV? Okay, yours probably just says, I'm weary, O oh God, I'm weary, O oh God. Um, so there's a little bit of, uh, um, I think it's a pun going on here in Hebrew that, that's causing these different translations. Um, it's a play on words. The, the phrase is literally, la etl, la etl, ukal. Okay, so it's the same word, la etl, and the first one, I think, should be translated to... Ithiel. Ithiel is a real name in Hebrew. You see it in another place in, in the Bible. Um, so I think the first, Laetiel, means to Ithiel. This is his audience. He is addressing Ithiel, who is probably his son. And you're going to see it later in the chapter. He's talking to you, you, you. Well, who's this you? It's clearly his son, Ithiel, uh, who he is addressing um, and by implication, his words are not just for Ithiel, they are for each one of us, as, as we will see. So that is Agra's introduction. Let's move on now to his confession and get into the meat of it here um, in verse 1b through 6. It begins by expressing both his despair and his hope. He says, to Ithiel, I am weary, O God, but I can prevail. Who is the NIV in here? Anybody? 
Okay? Okay? Help with video. I think the NIV gets it right. I think they, they have it. This is how it says, The man's uh, utterance to Ithiel, I am weary, O God, but I can prevail. They, they, they pick up on the pun that is going on. So we said the first, Laetiel, means to Ithiel. The second, Laetiel, the same word, if you separate it in Hebrew, it is Laeti, which means I am weary. And El means God. Um, and I think that's what's going on. He addresses Ithiel, and then he says, I am weary, I am worn out. I am in despair, O God. And then the next word, Ukal, so it brings this guy Ukal up. Who's that? Well, the name Ukal never appears anywhere, not only in Hebrew, but in any of the related languages. It's not a name. Um, so he's probably not addressing Ukal. Ukal is a verb, and uh, it's the verb from the root um, to be able or to prevail. So I think Agor is expressing here both despair and hope. He says, I am weary, O God, but I can prevail. Well, that's really interesting. Why is Agor saying that? Why does he say, I'm weary, O God, but I can prevail? Why does he have despair and hope mixed in here? And we are going to see the answer. He gives us the answer very clearly. So why is he despairing? Look at his ignorant condition mourned in verses 2 to 3. So he's just introduced his uh, confession, and now he mourns his ignorant condition. Verse 2, he says, Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. It literally, uh, verse 2 tells us that his despair is rooted in his lack of that which is fundamental for humanity. You can read it, indeed, I am a brute more than I am a man. I do not have the understanding of a human being, is how he says it. Agur says he is brutish, he's beast-like, he says, I am animal-like. The same word is used in Psalm 73, uh, The psalmist says, When my soul was embittered, I was pricked in heart. I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Right? So this is what Agur is saying. He's saying, uh, I am ignorant. I am stupid. I am on the level of an animal. Why is he saying that? How could he say that? Well, look at verse 2b. Look at the second line. He says, I do not have the understanding of a human being, is the, is the word. Um, in, in other words, I don't have the understanding that's essential for to be a human being. I don't have the understanding that is essential to live the fullness of what it means to be a human being. And therefore, I'm on the, on the level of an ignorant beast. Well, why does he say that? How... how What's that understanding? How is it that Agra is on this level? We'll look at the next verse, verse 3. What is this understanding of a man that he lacks? Verse 3 says um, that I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. It tells us that his despair is rooted in his lack of wisdom or knowledge of God. It's literally, I have not learned wisdom, nor do I know the knowledge of the Holy One. Um, he implies that he has tried to learn wisdom, 
He's tried to come to know God and he has failed. Is the point. And so he's weary. Um, he's tried to learn it from his teachers. But even they weren't able to give it to him. He has failed and he is weary. Um, Mike, do you think that yeah. he, was around, he was around Solomon and so he was kind of gleaning off if he, uh, of Solomon and maybe uh, people around him and then he just felt... Perhaps. He felt, perhaps. Um, if he was a Gentile, then he certainly had pagan teachers, right? And he uh, had pursuits of what wisdom pursuit was all over the ancient Near East at that time. It was Egyptian, it was Mesopotamia, there was wisdom teachers all over the place. And um, Agur's point here, the Bible's point here, is none of them were able to teach true wisdom. And we're going to see why Agur's going to explain exactly why that's the case. So perhaps he converted... Heard the, the, the faith of Israel, came to it, as we're going to see. I think it makes pretty clear in this chapter. And then he came under Solomon. I don't know the process of, of it. But, um, so, so if you remember, we began our study in Proverbs, if you were here, by looking at Job 28. Okay, and Job 28 says something very similar. Okay, hold your finger here and go back to Job 28. Okay, Agra confesses what Job confessed in Job 28 that... He has not learned wisdom because no man can discover wisdom. It is impossible. Um, very massive statement, and it's very significant um, to what, what Job is saying. Look at Job 28, verse 12. If you remember when we talked through it, it talks about the industry of man. He can dig in mines and find things that have been hidden for, for ages and pull them out. By his industry and by his, his intelligence. But look at verse 12. It says, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of true understanding? Here's the answer. Man doesn't know its worth. And it is not found in the land of the living. It cannot be discovered by man. True wisdom, true knowledge is impossible to be known by man. Is what Job says. And Agur says the same thing. Hold your hand in Job. We're going to be coming back here, but go back to go back to Agur in chapter chapter thirty. How is this the case? Why is it that wisdom can't be known by man? Why is it undiscoverable? Why is it impossible to be known? It's because wisdom consists of much more than just skillful living in this life. Wisdom consists in an intimate knowledge of one's Creator. Look at the next line. What he says, verse 3b, says, Nor do I know the knowledge of the whole. The reason why Agor is ignorant of true wisdom and knowledge is because he's ignorant of the one who's the ultimate source and the essence of all true wisdom and knowledge. The essence of wisdom is a relationship with the one who's the meaning of all things, the one who's the creator of all things. In this line, you hear Proverbs 9.10 echoed. What did it say in Proverbs 9.10? Do you remember? It said the beginning of wisdom, or the fundamental element of wisdom is what? It is the fear of the Lord. And what's the next line? And the knowledge of the Holy One. Same word. Is understood. 
What is wisdom? What is understanding? It is an intimate acquaintance with and a fearful trembling before the Holy One. And Ivor said, I didn't have that. And so I did not have true wisdom. To know this one is to have wisdom and not to know him is to have no wisdom at all. Bruce Waltke says the parallelism between wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One implies that wisdom as defined in this book is dependent on a personal relationship with God who stands apart from the restrictions of finitude and depravity. In other words, true wisdom consists in an intimate knowledge with one's holy creator. That is wisdom. And without that, you have no wisdom. And that's why Edward despairs, because he doesn't know God. Man can know information. Man can know science and technology. Uh, man can know medicine and astronomy and mathematics and music and art and history and all these things. But if he does not know God, if he doesn't see all things as they relate to God, he knows nothing fully and truly as he that is what Agra is saying. Man sets himself out to know and learn all about God's creation while not caring at all or having any ability at all on his own to see how it relates to an accurate truth with the true and one and only God. That is what Agra is saying. One commentator said, If the whole of reality comes from one wise and sovereign Lord who has ordered all things... Reality is all of one piece. Nothing is independent of God, and nothing can be truly interpreted independently of God. That is why Agur says that he's more beast-like than a man. He doesn't possess this fundamental, ultimate understanding that is necessary to be truly human, is what he says. He lacks it because he does not in God. And so he despairs. That's why he says he has not learned wisdom and he cannot learn wisdom. Now the question is, well, why not? Why can't he? Why does he not know God? Why has he not attained knowledge of the Holy One? The answer is that no man can know true wisdom because all wisdom has God at its core and no man can reveal God. That's the point. No man can reveal God. True wisdom consists in knowing the Holy One. Therefore, no man can have true wisdom because no man can reveal God. That's the point of Job 28. Proverbs 2.6 says the same thing. So therefore, that which is essential to be truly human, to live as we were designed to live, to have that understanding, that intimate relationship with God is impossible for mankind to have. And that is why Agra despairs. And that's why we ought to despair. Yeah? If no one can have plenary wisdom, why is Proverbs always saying over and over, um, yep. for wisdom and everything, if it's impossible to get? Because we're going to get the answer in one second. One second. It's a very good question. You're on track. Because there's hope. Remember? Agra says, I despair. I'm weary, but I can prevail. Well, How? He's weary. He's totally unable. How can he prevail? Well, look at where he goes. 
His weariness is his wisdom. His weariness is his pathway to success. His weariness is his giving up on his ability in his own self to attain wisdom. And it leads him to the only source of wisdom. He moves on now to ask a series of questions which explain why no man is qualified to attain wisdom, what the qualifications are, and who is the only one capable of revealing wisdom to mankind. Look at these questions in verse for his revealing questions. He begins with questions of ability. He asks who, 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 three times. Look at the first one. He says, who has ascended into heaven and come down? That is, who has entered into the realm of God to possess comprehensive knowledge? Heaven refers to the realm in which God dwells. And so it is inaccessible for man. You have to be able to go to heaven and come down to get wisdom, is what he's saying. You have to enter into the realm of God, and no man can do that. Flip, to, flip over to Deuteronomy 30. This is very significant. Deuteronomy 30. Hold your hand here. We've got to go fast. Um, but this is, this is big. I think Agoras point is back to Deuteronomy. He knows Deuteronomy, and he wants us to think about it. Deuteronomy 30, verse 11. Listen to this verse. That was just the same. Moses is saying, praising the law that God has given them. He says, for this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it down, that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over and get it for us, but the word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. In other words, God didn't say, okay, come to me, figure it out on your own. If that was the case, they would have to go to heaven and come down. They couldn't do it. But they had his word. How? Because God did what? He came down to them. That's the point. God brought it down. Only God can do this. Because only he has ascended to heaven. And so Deuteronomy is praising the law um, because without it, man would be in the dark. Man would be in the dark to who God is, what he's like, and how he ought to live. Um, so, so, so the point in Deuteronomy, the point of Agra is the preciousness of God's word. Listen to this, this prayer from a, a pagan at that time, which really highlights the, the significance of God's law and uh, why it was such a special thing and sort of helps us understand where Agra is coming from. It says, may my Lord's heart be reconciled. May the God I do not know be reconciled. May the goddess I do not know be reconciled. May the God, whoever he is, be reconciled. I do not know what wrong I have done. O God, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, great my sins. O goddess, whoever you are, many are my wrongs, great my sins. I do not know what wrong I have done. I do not know what sin I have committed. I do not know what abomination I have perpetrated. I do not know what taboo I have violated. Men are slow-witted and know nothing. They do not know at all if they are doing good or evil. Do you hear the despair in there? This guy knows there's a God. He knows God's angry at him. And he knows he has to do something to placate his wrath. And yet he knows nothing about who this God is. He knows nothing about what specific sin he has done. And he has, knows nothing about how to be reconciled to this God. 
That is why the law was such a gift. Man doesn't have to go to heaven and come down. God came down and gave it to him. You know, and that's why um, the pagans created all yeah. their false gods to create the, yep. the placate. And to that's right. It was, they're, they're capricious. You didn't know when they're angry or happy. And, and you, yeah, you have no idea. Yeah. And it's It's horrifying. And man is totally inaccessible to God to know anything about him, what he requires, unless God brings it down to him. And that's, that is what Agor is pointing us to. So heaven represents the realm in which God is. Heaven also represents the realm in which all things can be seen. And if you remember when we preached through um, Job 28, we, we made the statement that to possess wisdom, you must possess comprehensive knowledge. You must know everything there is or you can know no absolute knowledge. The only way you can have absolute knowledge for certain is if you know everything that there is. And that's an impossibility for man. You have to be in heaven with a lofty view from heaven where you can see the whole in which you can make make sense of the individual parts. That uh, is what Agra is saying. That's what Job said. If your finger's still in Job, look over there, Job 28. Let me read it to you really quickly. It says, God understands the way to it, way to wisdom, and he knows its place. Listen, for he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. God can give wisdom. Why? Because he has comprehensive knowledge. Only one that knows everything there is can give a statement and knowledge and truth about anything with absolute certainty. Wisdom is inaccessible to man because God is inaccessible and comprehensive knowledge of everything is inaccessible. You may remember the illustration we gave when we did that lesson about Westminster uh, Seminary's library. They built it in a location that they thought was the ideal location on campus. But it turned out that not only was it not the ideal location on campus, it was the, one of the worst locations in all of North America. Because they had built it on, unbeknownst to them, what were underground vaults emitting high levels of radon gas, higher than a uranium mine. And what they thought was the wisest decision to put the library here actually proved to be the most foolish decision. Why? It's because they did not possess comprehensive knowledge. They thought they were doing the right thing, but because they didn't know everything there was to be known, they could not have absolute knowledge or wisdom. And the same is true for man. Man can do what he thinks is best, but because he doesn't know everything, he can know nothing for certain. Um, Cornelius Van Til said it like this. He said, man seeks knowledge within himself as the final reference point. But the man who does that will have to hold that if he cannot attain to such an exhaustive understanding of reality, he has no true knowledge of anything at all. Either man must know everything or he knows nothing. This is the dilemma that confronts every form of non-Christian epistemology. Man can have no true wisdom because he's limited, he's finite, and then you add on top of that, he's depraved. <laughs> we are toast. We have no ability to get wisdom. We have no ability to know who God is. We have no ability to know anything for certain about this life impossible. That's where the Enlightenment got it wrong, and that's where the postmoderns still get it wrong, because they have not despaired of their own wisdom, like Agar has. And it's not driven them to look beyond themselves. So look at how Agar answers his next questions. 
He now asks, who has sovereign control of the elements? He says, who has gathered the winds in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? The picture here is of sovereign, total control of the elements. It's pictured as an easy thing. Imagine grasping the winds. I mean, you can't grasp a little bit of wind. Solomon makes fun of it in Ecclesiastes. You can't hold the wind. And this one grasps the winds. He has sovereign control of the elements. And he gathers up the waters, the oceans, and the rain in, in a robe. It's a small thing. It reminds you of Isaiah, how Isaiah talks about the Lord. In other words, wisdom and knowledge can only come from one who has sovereign control of the universe. Well, why is that? It's because wisdom doesn't only consist in information. It consists in the ability to guarantee that the very best ends will result. God not only knows everything, but he has sovereign control to guarantee that his wisdom will succeed. Uh, in Job 38-39, you, you, you know it well, where God is questioning Job at the very end. He's asking him all these questions, drilling him. Um, and he, he begins by, by saying, Job, you don't even know where mountain goats give birth. How do you think you can know anything? Job, you know nothing. You don't know anything about all of these common things in creation. How do you think you could possibly make sense of your suffering in life? You have no idea what happened in heaven. You have no idea that Satan approached my throne and I am getting glory. Job, you know nothing. You have no wisdom on your own. And then he goes on to talking about how he has total sovereign control of the oceans. He says, I say to the waters, you stop here. He makes a boundary for the sea so it cannot transgress its limits. Total sovereign control. God knows not only everything, he has total control over everything. Why? So that he can guarantee that his wisdom will succeed. It's amazing. Man, if we can't do any of this, only God. Look at the next question. He says, who's established all the ends of the earth? This combines the sovereignty and the comprehensive knowledge that we saw in the previous previous two. And the point is man does not meet these criteria. And that is a cause to despair. There's no way we could ever know everything there is to know. And even if we did, there's no way we could guarantee it and control it and bring it to pass. So, yeah. Years ago, we had a discussion uh, at Liberty between mm. the scientists from UVA and one of our Liberty guys. Mm. And it was very interesting because the the conclusion or the, the statement of the UVA scientist was science is not interested in truth. Mm. It's interested in theories. Mm. We don't know truth. Yeah. We only can develop theories. Yeah. Because science is tentative. It yes. does not come up with final answers at all. It can. That's what yeah. man's yep. search is for truth, but they cannot find truth. Yep. It's only tentative. That's excellent. It's excellent. Yeah, and he's right on. He only he made the next step that Iger makes here. But they weren't interested so, in truth, he said, yep. which is, mm. I've never heard a scientist yep. admit that before. Mm. He said, we're not interested in truth, yep. just in theories. Mm. It's good. Because it's impossible. You can't do it. You have to know everything. And then you have to guarantee that what you know is being the best is that it will come so. Look at the next series of, of questions here, and then we're going to... What does this all mean for us? He has questions of identity. He asks Ithiel now to identify what is his name. So the answer is clearly no man 
But there is one. What is his name? What is the name of the only one who qualifies to answer these questions? And what is it? What is it? What is his name? His name is Yahweh. The question reminds us of Exodus 3.13 where Moses says to God, Israel asks, what is your name? And God says, my name is I am who I am. I am the God who reveals myself as the sovereign, the one and only self-existent one. His name is Yahweh. Yahweh is the only one capable of revealing true wisdom. Yahweh is the only one capable of revealing himself to man, which is the essential understanding that's needed for being a human being, and he's done it. Proverbs chapter 2, verse 6 says, the Lord gives wisdom. That's the answer to your question. Man can't do it. The Lord and the Lord alone gives wisdom. Truth, absolute certain truth and wisdom and skillful living in life and the whole package only comes through revelation. We're desperate for revelation. Look at the next question he asks. He not only asks, what is his name? But he asks, what is his son's name? What's the answer? What is his son's name? I don't think he's talking about Jesus here. He's not talking about capital S, son. Who is the son in Proverbs? The son is always the recipient of instruction, right? Here, my son, your father's instruction. He's the disciple. Who is the son of of God, who is God's recipient of his revelation? It's Israel. You look at Deuteronomy over and over and over again. Israel is called God's son. He's the one he's revealed himself to. And look at what Agur says next. He says, what is his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. He's calling Ithiel here to acknowledge Yahweh is the only source of wisdom. He's calling him to acknowledge Israel is the only recipient of God's wisdom. And now he's calling Abor, uh, he's calling Ithiel to humble himself and submit and join in Israel and be a recipient of that same wisdom and revelation God has given. It's a call for every man to join in the blessings of Israel by coming in humility and in faith and in submission, bowing before the, reverent, the, the revelation of Yahweh given to Israel through his word and through Jesus Christ. Very interesting. John 3.13, Jesus says the same thing. He says, no man is ascended to heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is pointing us back here and saying, I am the final revelation of God. You want to know God? You want to have wisdom? You get it from his word and you get it from his capital W word. We need revelation. Without it, we despair. Uh, there's no hope. So Agur says, I'm weary, O oh God. I can't do it, but I can prevail. It's possible. On my own, we can't. We need revelation. And guess what? God has come down. God has given it to us in his word and in the person of Christ. And we're going to see next week in verses 5 to 6, um, Agar just knocks the ball out of the park. It is rich. And we're, we'll get to those next week. But let me summarize really quickly. Um, we are out of time. Look, look at your implications. And let me just read them off to you and take them home, chew on them, meditate on them. Number one, this is where everyone must begin. Before we can know wisdom, 
We have to despair of our own. We have to reject any ability in ourselves to attain true wisdom and absolute knowledge. We can't do it. Number two, recognize the massive value of God's revelation. Man, we know God. We know what he accepts. We know how to be right with him. We know how to live. You can't know any of that with certainty apart from revelation. Cultivate an eye to see how all things are related to God, how nothing exists independent from God. Number four, pursue wisdom by first and foremost pursuing an intimate relationship with this holy God and submitting to his word. Number five, reject all human wisdom and knowledge that is not founded on and in accordance with God's word. Man may get a few things right, like the pagan. There's a God, he knew he's in trouble. He doesn't know any details how to fix it. Anything that man gives that is not founded on God's word or in accordance with God's word must not be accepted. Why? Because it's folly. There's no way it could be, it could be truthful. Finally, look, look at your follow-up questions there. Look at number four. How much is it evident in my life that I have despaired of man's wisdom and cling to God's revelation as my only hope? Is it evident? I think all of us would confess what Agro confesses. Is it evident in my life? Is, is it evident in how I make my decisions? Is it evident in how much time I devote to Scripture? Is it evident where I turn to for counsel or direction or solutions to life's problems? That is what Agro is calling us to. Despair of man's wisdom. Flee to God's words. You only hope. And we have it. We have a gift here. We have a treasure. Treasure it. Value it. Center your life upon it. And uh, you will not be to the shame. We're out of time. Do you have any questions, um, comments? It's rich. So, yeah. What does epistemology mean? Epistemology means the study or the pursuit of knowledge. How do we know knowledge? How do we get knowledge? Um, and man has many ways to do it. And Agar's point is uh, you can't do it um, apart from revelation. So, yep. That's good. All right. Any questions? Um, yes. I don't think so. No, I, I think you'd have to import New Testament theology. Now, I think by implication, you can eventually get there, but but that's not the meaning of Agur here. The Son. You have to read it contextually. It's two. It is, in the book of Proverbs, the son is always the disciple. The son is always the one receiving instruction. And then, on the fact that Agur is pulling from Deuteronomy over and over, well, who's the son of Deuteronomy? It is Israel. Um, so I, I think it's pretty clear he's called an Ithiel, the son, to join in Israel. Israel's the son. They've received revelation, not, not, not join in them. You know that. And I believe it. Bouncers. Similar to the personification of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that can be correlated with Christ, uh, you know. Yeah, 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 and I think there again, the, the wisdom is, is is clearly a personification of Solomon's wisdom. But by application, implication, you can eventually get to Christ. But I don't think that is the meaning in that passage. Yeah. It's what it is. So. Well, I've heard it said. You know, yep. it's like a yeah, I don't. I, I wouldn't agree with that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. 
So, very good. All right. Also, all right, let me pray really quick. Father, we thank you. Thank you for your word. What more can you say than to than what you have already said? We have it all. And if we didn't, we'd have no hope of getting any more. Thank you for it. We don't have to be as the ignorant pagan. <laughs> oh, Lord, you're so good. Thank you for revealing yourself. Thank you for the hope we have. Help us to truly treasure your word and live our life through the grid work of your word and everything we say, do, and think. We love you. Prepare us for the service to come. In Jesus' name, amen.